0: Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, welcome to Beyond the
1: Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. What you're about to hear in today's episode was recorded prior to the SCOTUS decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. But before we get to today's episode, I'd like to introduce you to another podcast in the Offscript Health Media Network. Is It Serious pulls back the curtain on the American health system and answers all of your health concerns one question at a time. Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis are hosts of the podcast. They share their medical knowledge in a fun, light-hearted chat while also getting to the root of the question of the day. Questions like how has marijuana affected their practice, how doctors deal with the paperwork and the demands of insurance companies, or even how doctors approach dying. You can find more information in our podcast notes or at offscriptnoti.com shows. You know, we're so inundated daily with ads for everything. Well, almost everything. Ever wonder about what you aren't seeing, especially when it comes to women's health? Our guest today has taken this issue on, along with the social media giants that control what we see or don't see. Jackie Rotman is founder and CEO of the Center for Intimacy Justice. First of all, I want to say welcome. Hello.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to talk to you.
1: Oh, terrific to have you as well. So again, going to start out and ask you, what is intimacy justice and why did you create an organization focused on that?
2: Yeah, there's an amazing researcher named Sarah McClelland who did this, wrote this research paper where she coined the term intimate justice and talks a lot about how power and inequity seep into the areas of our intimate lives in, in ways that are often not discussed, um, but are really important. And I'm really passionate about creating more well being when it comes to uh, people's relationship lives to sexuality to love because it there's it's such an area where you can have so much connection and joy and positive flourishing and yet there are all these ways um, from sexual assault to consent issues to other inequities in our culture and how different people's pleasure is perceived differently or to have different importance. There's so many areas where things are not always in balance and um, so the Center for Intimacy Justice is A social change organization committed to greater equity and well-being in people's intimate lives. Um, We have focused on one area so far um, most largely to do that, but over time there are many different areas where we want to promote intimate intimacy justice.
1: And what is that one area that you're working on currently?
2: We've been really focused on changing tech policies for algorithms uh, Around advertising in women's health and health for people with vulvas. So, around 2017, 2018, I started interviewing amazing entrepreneurs, um, many like those that you've worked with and invested in and partnered with, where so many women and non binary people have been creating new uh, innovations and entrepreneurial ventures to solve different problems in health. And yet, every single one of the ones that I spoke with had experienced censorship in not being allowed to advertise. So we did a study at the Center for Intimacy Justice of 60 women-led and non-binary-led health startups, where 100% of them had had a, a meta platform, whether it was Facebook or Instagram, reject their ads, and 50% of them had their entire account suspended. Um, and we can talk about all the ways that that's important and has broader impact on our society, but. We felt like there really needed to be an organization that was uh, creating different strategic approaches to changing that inequity um, and that discriminatory practice that was censoring ads very differently based on the genders that the health was about. So
1: explain to me the legal basis that they would have to do that.
2: That Facebook would have? Or, yes, yeah,
1: or the other social
2: media as well. Yeah, well, to start, um, in terms of even one le- level up from legal, just what? Why are they doing this? What's happening? Platforms like Facebook and other tech platforms, their AI often misclassifies health information. If it has to do with vulvas, or um, you know, particularly health for people with vulvas, it's often misclassified as. In the case of Facebook, it's called their adult products and services policy, but it also gets censored. I mean, they're talking
1: about porn. Yeah. They think it's porn.
2: Yeah, they think that it's overly sexual, and yet they allow Mm -hmm. ads for erectile dysfunction and you know, for ball hair manscaping or <laughs> products to have an erection for men, those are have been allowed and exceptions have been made. But then ads for menopause or, or vaginal dryness or even talking to a teledoctor about pelvic pain and things like this is, is getting flagged. Um, you know, legally, we th- we believe this is discrimination we believe that this is happening um disproportionately to uh women's health companies um or other people of diverse genders while male focused health companies have been privileged and um you know we believe that that's that's not right and that you know there's a lot more legal (laughs) aspects of that but so far the tech platforms have continued to have this double standard and haven't fixed it yet, um, despite this becoming increasingly known in the public and something that we released more information about this January.
1: Right. And you had a big report, right, that came out and talked about this. So I'm assuming that the founders of these startups, you as an organization, have called this to their attention, meaning the social media companies. And what has been their response?
2: The public response in January when there was a new wave of press from our report um, had Facebook say things like, oh, you know, our algorithms aren't perfect. We make mistakes sometimes. They've never, they, they generally, and I've also heard them say that this, you know, this was a mistake. Menopause ads, for example, should be allowed. They even updated their policy sometime in the last one or two years to explicitly say that ads to relieve vaginal dryness are supposed to be allowed. Um, But in practice, that just hasn't, that's just not actually what's happening. Um, So it appears that, that they don't intend to be banning these ads and that they're saying it's a mistake with their algorithms. But from our standpoint, we want this to be a greater priority where they actually resource changing this and revisiting both the algorithmic flagging, but also other ways of being able to, to identify that a company is a legitimate health company, even if its algorithms would have flagged it having some sort of verification or alternative process. Um, but so far, it hasn't seemed to rise to the level of priority. And dozens of entrepreneurs have met with hundreds of Facebook employees who have had conversations and sometimes, sometimes sympathize with the issue. But we've been working to have it rise to a level of prioritization where it's taken seriously and actually fixed.
1: And my understanding is that it's one thing when they out and out say, we're not accepting this ad or we can't run it. But I also understand that there has been something called shadow banning, where the company may not even know that it's not getting to its intended audience. Talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so there's two different uh, high level, there's two different ways that um, groups can get information at. One is through advertising and one is through regular organic content. That would be you and me posting from our individual accounts, for example, or from a company account. And the bar is when it comes to Meta, and this is very different for TikTok and other platforms.
1: So when you talked about Meta, you're really talking about Facebook and Instagram.
2: Yeah, and, and now WhatsApp is also a part of Facebook, but we have seen the censorship more commonly on Facebook and, and Instagram. Yeah, okay. so uh, Facebook seems to have a higher, when it comes to just all altogether rejecting the entire post, that happens more commonly with the advertising. Um, they seem to have a slightly higher bar for just like rejecting content overall, but shadow banning is very common, especially for content. So an individual can post and we know that certain information if it has to do with sexual health or other aspects of sexuality, Facebook is, is hiding that. Fewer people are seeing it in how the algorithms are picked up, which is also stifling information. Um, and so shadow banning is also very common for content as well.
1: Yeah, and it's, again, how does a company even know that's happening?
2: Yeah, it's really hard because often they'll know it's happening because they can see the comparisons of their posts or sometimes they'll be shadow banned on all of their posts starting at a certain time and they'll see a huge drop-off from the engagement that they used to get. But it's hard for them to, because it's done in a way that is it's shadow banning, it's it's uh, it's not entirely banned. It's even more difficult for them to get the proof to be able to um very clearly appeal it.
1: So other than the issue about companies not being able to advertise directly to their potential consumers or, or customers, which, by the way, doesn't make any sense to me. Seems like, and if they're getting paid by the clicks or the views or whatever it is, this would seem to be a no-brainer in terms of of business. But I'm not going to tell Meta how to do their business. <laughs> um, But at the same time, other than that, for the entrepreneurs and the companies and perhaps society at large, what's the implication here?
2: There's so many implications. I usually bucket into four categories. The first is that it's much more difficult to get information about health, and we already know that. For conditions like endometriosis, which causes painful sex and a variety of other difficult symptoms, it takes people 7 to 10 years to find out that they have endometriosis, which is twice, more than twice the time it takes to sail around the entire world in terms of the difficulty with getting information from our doctors and from um, other sources. And and yet, information about endometriosis, as one example, is blocked from people Um among a host of other conditions. So one is that consumers, people using these platforms can't access information that could be positively improving their lives. The second is that from an entrepreneur's aspect and from the the financial sides of this, it's creating a huge gender inequity when it comes to the ability to grow a business. Facebook is, crucial as a growth channel and digital advertising is crucial and and by the way it's not just facebook google is censoring this content tiktok is censoring this content even linkedin professional posts uh that are content not even advertising will often be taken down because the uh because linkedin will classify them as sexual and it's about health and so across all of these channels but particularly um Instagram and Facebook for a variety of reasons um, it stunts the ability for a company to grow and be able to raise more follow-on funding now the largest one of the largest um, privately owned health companies is Ro and they are valued at five billion dollars started as an erectile dysfunction company has been allowed to advertise since 2017 but um, and hims has also been allowed to advertise since its early days. But in that same period that we've seen a massive scaling of men's health companies or male health companies, companies that are addressing the needs of people with vulvas are not able to achieve that same growth. Those are often companies started by women, non-binary people. So they're being blocked from a, a hugely important economic opportunity. And the growth curves of these companies looks completely different because of this advertising censorship in ways that really directly affects people's Um, economic opportunities and their ability to employ other women and people of diverse genders. The third piece is that it makes it harder to invent technologies that support our health because those companies don't have the same innovation opportunities and cycles when it comes to getting more investment capital to then invest in new technology. But the last one is that when it comes to cultural equity, because we're seeing fewer examples of women's health and women's agency over our sexual health, it, it actually reduces people's expectations of, of what they can even um, create for themselves in, in terms of uh, being able to know that their, their sexual health or their sexual pleasure or their well-being is equally valid. We have a culture where men's ads are being inundated for men who are being targeted with erection ads, but women can't even get menopause ads through. And that sets a larger culture about whose well-being and whose lives are considered important when it comes to health. You
1: mentioned that a number of these companies, these men's health companies, have had, you know, significant advantage and advantages have you been able to partner with them at all as allies? Are they helping to, you know, forward this uh, initiative?
2: Great question. 2019 was the year that Dame, uh, a sexual wellness company led by women in Brooklyn, sued the MTA. And at that time, you definitely saw statements from Hims and Roe in support of what they were advocating for, and there was an awareness that these male companies were able to get ads through that other counterparts focused on sexual health and wellness weren't. I'd really like to see more of that. Absolutely. And you said that Dame, um,
1: the sexual wellness company, specifically uh, focused on women, um, sued the MTA. Who is the MTA and what was the outcome of that?
2: The MTA is uh, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority in New York City. It's essentially... Um, runs the New York City subways. And at the time that erectile dysfunction, uh, a new wave of startups was created, if you walked in the New York City subways in 2019, there would be these long ads, like it would take you 15 seconds to walk past them that were just a large cactus meant to (laughs) represent a penis and sell erectile dysfunction drugs. You could not escape them in your daily commute, these like erection focused ads. Um, and there was hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into two new startups um, be- with some shifts that were happening with the Viagra patent and telemedicine. And then at the same time, uh, there were multiple uh, companies that were focused on vulva health that couldn't get their ads through. So earlier in 2015 or 2016, Things, which was a period ad, tried mm-hmm. to get these uh, peach or like citrus ads through for menstrual health. and. And it was too graphic for the MTA. And then uh, around 2017 or so, um, Unbound uh, couldn't get their ads through for vibrators. And so they had a a WTF MTA campaign to speak out about it. And then finally, Dame, also a sex toy company, um, got so, you know, decided it was time to do something. So they decided to sue the MTA on free speech grounds because this was a tax funded, Um, entity, and they said that this was violating their free speech rights, and it was a two and a half year legal battle. By the way, the ads that they wanted to get through were (laughs) incredibly discreet. The products were not phallic. They were actually educational and really beautiful, and yet the, uh, the MTA said that they were too sexual in nature. They also said, oh, we don't allow any sexual ads of any sort, which was not the case. And it took a two and a half year legal battle before they settled that case allowing dame to get ads through for one quarter that couldn't actually talk about or show what the products did were just abstract art Um, that was a time-bound series of ads that that may or may not be allowed to continue and certainly didn't allow others in the space to advertise that hadn't already expended the resources of this lawsuit so it was a positive um, fight and a hard fight and a lot of education was done around it but ultimately an outcome that still showed the massive double standards that we have and what can be advertised and whose sexual well-being matters.
1: Now, I understand that I, perhaps because of the published report or your work in general, that your, that the center uh, caught the eye and this issue caught the eye of some folks in the legislature. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, we were so excited. So in uh, January 11th, we published a report sharing the statistics that I told you about about 100% of these 60 companies having their ads banned. And it was uh, covered in the New York Times and about 60 media outlets um, across several outlets. And... Just two weeks after the report, Senator Patty Murray, a senator in uh, Washington who heads the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, uh, wrote a brilliant four-page open letter to Mark Zuckerberg and to META demanding answers and specifically asking what META is doing in response to Center for Intimacy Justice's report, how the the mechanics of this censorship work. and we required Facebook to have to answer to Congress on this, um, which was brilliant. And uh, the f- the findings of what Facebook says are stick with Congress. so it's not public all of what they said, but it was really valuable for forcing the issue to be prioritized um, differently. And then about two weeks after Senator Patty Murray, Submitted the letter, Hillary Clinton actually tweeted saying, You know, Patty, I'm curious, have you heard from Meta on this? And there was a back and forth between Senator Patty Murray and Hillary Clinton um, about Facebook not having yet responded, but Hillary Clinton uh, expressing support that she knew that Senator Murray would stay on them. And we hope it's just the beginning. It intersects many issues um, in health and I hope it's the start of more policy engagement and legislative advocacy to help us see more change on the issue. But it's so exciting. Absolutely.
1: Yes, absolutely. And are you doing anything specifically in this area of uh, policy change that uh, folks can follow along with?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be, CAJ has researched three or four different legal areas and we're going to be launching a new policy action Likely um, sometime in this coming fall, um, we'll be seeking to get the Federal Trade Commission to legislate Facebook on this if necessary, and if Facebook doesn't create the change prior to that. And we'll also be continuing to work with legislators around other legislative avenues for accountability. Um, we've also looked at shareholder activism and other legal routes to creating change. So now that the information is available to the public so that people see what the problem is we see the next step if necessary um actually taking actions that have policy teeth to to force change on this issue or to propel change um if it's necessary to keep putting to to keep that external pressure on Uh, we'll be sharing more information in the in the weeks ahead but there will be a lot of ways that people can share their individual voice and activate their communities in support of amplifying um, this being taken seriously.
1: We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown. We've talked a lot about the impact on social media, but yet many of us still watch broadcast news and broadcast media. And so does this extend also into
2: broadcast media? Absolutely. We've seen, and the reason that I think we see it even more commonly with social media is that for earlier stage startups, that's where they're starting from a price point standpoint. And by the time companies can get uh, broadcast media commercials, they tend to be a bit larger. But those that have have certainly seen this double standard We've heard of examples of, I I spoke with a menopause brand that sells uh, vaginal lotion, and they actually produced an entire ad, and it was only after the entire ad was produced and paid for that they had to remove the word vaginal. So if you're getting an ad and you're seeing an ad on TV for lotion, you are not going to buy the product and know that it's to support vaginal dryness. and they still had to pay for the ad, but, but couldn't say the word vaginal around their health product. So we certainly see it in broadcast. We see it in out-of-home billboard ads. It's pervasive across every ad platform, including you know music streaming advertisements. And, and you know, we've, we've heard of this advertising censure and censorship across every possible ad outlet.
1: I just am curious, how did you come to getting involved in this?
2: I about five years ago i started to realize that i wanted to work in some topic related to women's sexuality and particularly women's pleasure i had a really unusual dad who was really open and really empowering and um when i was 19 he gave me a lecture about a very scientific talk dispelling myths about the female orgasm and my brother had gotten that talk much earlier it was only because by the time i was 19 my mom hadn't done it that my dad finally did so um i had this unusually open upbringing that i only started to appreciate in my mid-20s because i just thought my dad was so quirky but didn't realize how powerful that is in a culture that um denies and dismisses the importance of women's sexual well-being um so i actually shared that story in a, a graduate school class at harvard kennedy school a leadership class And started to have all these people set up coffees with me to talk about parenting and fathering and their daughters and um, their family communication about sexuality. They would set up talks to like coffee to ask about buying a vibrator with their partner for the first time. And I started to realize that that this is an area I never thought you could you could have you do academic or professional work in, but that makes a huge impact in people's lives. And it's a really important part of our lives where we can experience dignity and joy. And um, two weeks later, I experienced like a much more inequitable experience of sexual assault, um, which happens to so many millions of people during university and was during my grad school. And I just became obsessed with how can we create more positivity in our sexual culture. And because I was already in an MBA program, instead of a law program, it was a different way of doing that because I wanted to look at, and I was also in a, in a policy degree, but um, was really looking at, okay, how can we use, I was in Silicon Valley for business school. So I was asking how can we use technology, innovation, entrepreneurship to affect these issues. Whereas maybe I, I might've been a lawyer if it had ha- if it, <laughs> if you know, I think a lot of people go into like rape law on those issues. And the, du- the double standards were so prevalent on advertising that um, while at first I had been interested in investing to get more capital into these companies, I realized if we could enable them to advertise, we would see billions more dollars going into the space because these would become, it would expand the ability to reach these markets. And this was a critical gap that stunted the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem, but needed you needed a, a multi-pronged strategic approach because it was so complex to change. So um, I, I started getting interested in it from meeting peers who are creating startups and just listening to their challenges and realizing like this was completely unacceptable.
1: Wow, good for you. And maybe that's great that you didn't, for all of us, that you didn't go the law route because the way that you're approaching this is so different and hopefully uh, effective as well, and already has been, certainly. And I am sorry to hear about your experience with the sexual assault. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's, as you said, all too common mm-hmm. um, and, and needs to be addressed. And I'm wondering, kind of linking that, you know, it took a long time, for example, for the Violence Against Women mm-hmm. Act to be re um, Ratified, mm-hmm. if you will, and you know we 're dealing right now with this currently with this leak from the Supreme Court um, justices that is very much looking like it may overturn roe versus wade, and there's been a lot of discussion about reproductive rights women 's bodies, and you made an interesting point about um the expectations and the cultural equity, mm-hmm. and so I wonder what kinds of thoughts you're having right now, given your knowledge and your experience about what's currently happening.
2: Yeah, it's it's such an intense time, and especially as somebody that grew up always having Roe in place, and then having <laughs> a fifty-year-old just its decision be overturned. It's it's a really interesting time in our space and certainly more than ever digital rights are a crucial part of of health where um in you know when it comes to information access people type into google where to find healthcare, and how google and other platforms are handling information and censorship when it comes to getting information about um reproductive health care access is crucial and i think it's important for, for funders to understand the digital aspects of it, too, in addition to the on-the-ground and the political aspects, because so many of these uh, gender equality fights and, and human rights fights and reproductive health fights are happening digitally, and we have to be smart about how information is being shared um, or not shared, and uh, particularly with the rise in misinformation, Um the way that our information will be handled when it comes to privacy is really scary. So there's been all this, all these new articles this, these past two weeks about um, how information about period cycles will now be available for people in ways where it can share information about pregnancies that have ended and that can be used toward criminal purposes or people's data about their health care when it comes to telemedicine can be used in different ways. um, And that is all of concern and all an important part of digital health. Um, And so as we continue to fight around reproductive healthcare access, having a lens of tech is going to be necessary in the changing world and in ways that wasn't even the case in the 70s, but in 2022 is essential for information.
1: Wow, you know, you bring up a really good point, and that is the average consumer probably doesn't know what they're not being shown Mm -hmm. or how that algorithm is directing them to the resources when they search. Mm -hmm. And then to build also on what you said in terms of privacy, there's a number of healthcare apps, especially in the fertility and period space, that is that have been created for uh, helping to make women's lives easier or more effective and productive and may or may not be complicit, potentially, in some of the ways that these can be used nefariously. Mm -hmm. Um, So how would you suggest the average consumer approach technology and what are some tips that you might suggest to them to protect their privacy to but to also get the healthcare information and products that they need.
2: Yeah. It's interesting cuz I feel like so much of it if the the average consumers are the ones that are being impacted by, you know, what Google decides about what searches are and are not allowed when someone types in how to get health. But there are so many other pieces that are happening at the political level and at the corporate policy level. And I think there needs, there, my interest is how can we change those systemic issues so that by the time a consumer needs information, um, there are, there's accurate health information being shared with them.
1: You said that you're looking at other, um, other issues. What do you think your next issue will be that you will uh, address?
2: Yeah, we're really interested in alternative family structures. So totally different area than femtech and health. Um, Thinking about families' rights and freedom and autonomy for people to be able to create their own family lives. I feel like we've come a long way when it comes to LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage, but there's so many other people who live in family lives that are outside of um, what has ever been legally recognized or uh, predominant in our society. So for example... um, three parent families or um, platonic partners who raise children together. but um, in, in committed partnerships but aren't necessarily romantic or sexual partners, we're really passionate about how can we create anti-discrimination protections for alternative families and um, think about new legal rights that expand uh, well-being and acceptance is an area that we're going to be delving into more. So in some ways, a total 180 from women's health and technology, but still related to values of um, equality.
1: Sure. And, you know, not so unrelated if you follow the thread from, again, this potential decision with SCOTUS. Yeah. I think the fear is that same-sex marriages will yeah. be at risk. And then, again, you're talking about more than that, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's really how more difficult will it be for these alternative family yeah. um, pods to to be able to function?
2: Yeah
1: How are you funded?
2: Yeah, we've been mostly philanthropically funded so far. So we've had um the case have you heard of the case for her? There are uh, two women That's who are in Sweden. One is I think one is American one's Canadian, but they provided a lot of bold like startup uh funding and then we've had some other another some other philanthropists participate we're also creating a we've had um so far a couple of businesses and a nonprofit all of which are censored from advertising contribute and we're we're starting to create more programs where people can participate in a membership um but so far it's largely been through people donating to support the work are you a nonprofit
1: Okay, so then if they want, if people want to support your work, they could go to your website and make a donation? Yes. T- terrific. And, um, you know, we do have these midterms coming up. Yeah. And I've thought about making a women's health checklist, and I'm not saying be one issue, but if you were going to add to that checklist of questions to ask a candidate mm. in this area, what would you have... Uh, uh, voters ask these candidates.
2: Yeah. So I, I mean, speaking uh, rega- regarding C.I.J. and what what this topic is about, um, I would ask them, you know, what what are you doing to hold tech companies accountable for um, certain outcomes, including access to information about women's health? Um, that's a really important issue, and particularly as we talk about women's health care having an understanding of the technological and digital aspects of that is essential. So I hope to see more policymakers um, like the Senate health committee that's taken this on that are willing to advocate and fight for women's health when it comes to, you know, calling on companies like Facebook to allow information um, which seems so basic, but is literally something that we need Congress to fight for.
1: Absolutely. And are there any other actions that you would, urge listeners to take in this area.
2: Yeah, when it comes to equality, it's so we're building a movement of of businesses, of nonprofits, of individuals, of investors, of so many of us where it's going to require so many voices to be able to show this this needs to be fixed. We have to um we have to act and so one step is just when it comes to building um ways of communicating, Um, people should, uh, you know, read the report to get more information about this. And as we take more steps on advertising equality, we wanna build a network of people that we're in communication with. So, you know, follow this work. you know, share your your email and your communication so that as we build a collective movement, we can have every individual um, that's interested in this be a part of the fights ahead. And there will be lots of fights ahead because this issue has existed for decades and um, we're starting to see change, but it it will take a whole collective for change.
1: Absolutely. Well, Jackie Rotman, CEO of the Center for Intimacy Justice, thank you so much for being with us. This was really eye-opening and so interesting.
2: Thank you so much, Mitzi. It's so, this is, you're amazing. It's really great to talk.
1: Thank you. As you can see, our health choices can be affected by the information we receive. And if we're not receiving this information, we lack the opportunity to make informed decisions. What really strikes me about this conversation is the fact that we might not even know what information is being hidden from us. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this subject, please let us know at beyondthepapergown.com. We'll also put resources on our site that help you take action so that you can let your lawmakers and social media outlets know how you feel about this issue. And as always, thanks for
0: listening. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com Or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shambayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.